Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good evening. We have good news. Can you hear me? Well, great news. You're going to have a very special um, treatment because you can hear us, whereas the online audience um, is going to be on mute for a bit. So good evening, everybody, and welcome to the LSE for this um, annual Behavioral Public Policy Lecture, uh, which is supported by Stickard and uh, the Department of Social Policy and funded by the LSE Hayek program. Uh, my name is Barbara Fazolo. I'm a decision scientist at the Department of Management at the LSE. I direct uh, the LSE, the uh, Behavioral Research Lab, which is um, directed with uh, Matteo Galizzi at a different department of psychological and behavioral science. And um, we, uh, here it is, uh, some information for want to be involved, but really our mission is to boost rigor and impact in interdisciplinary behavioral research. If you want to know more and get involved, please scan the QR code, go to our website, which is brand new. And one of the things we, um, we like about the lab is that it gets us to uh, have a dialogue with uh, behavioral researchers across the LSE. Um, most important one is uh, Professor Adam Oliver uh, there in the middle, who's really the mastermind of uh, tonight's event. And um, one thing I want to acknowledge is also we have an initiative we put together, which is an international uh, behavioral public policy association. We're members. Um, it's time to renew our membership, so little nudge if you, if you wish. Um, super cheap, 20 pounds a year, and uh, it has terrific financial and non-financial benefits. For those of us who want to uh, be at the forefront of the latest research in behavioral public policy. So with that, um, now I'd like to um, introduce you uh, to the speaker for tonight's event and welcome you officially to the LSE, uh, Professor uh, Ralph Hurtig. It's, it's his first visit in person um, at, the, at the LSE, but we discovered that actually he's been connected with Stickard and the LSE uh, for a while, since he was a student uh, at University of Constance, um, and he sat in the classes of our former um, PhD student, he had two PhDs, and former LSE director, Ralph Darendorf. Um, I'll let uh, Ralph perhaps tell the story about uh, his visit to Ralph Darendorf's picture earlier today uh, in the Shaw Library. But it was interesting because it was during uh, Ralph Darendorf's uh, directorate that Stickard was founded. And um, I believe has been a connection with your passion for social issues and uh, applied research. Uh, I had the honor to work um, at the Max Planck Institute with Ralph and when Ralph was there as a research scientist. And um, it, was, um, it was interesting, it was a time when you were also prepping for the Habilitation, um, which is a German term for the uh, kind of promotion, uh, career development track, and it makes me feel a little bit better about the British uh, way of things. And um, he still had the time to come grill us during our postdoc uh, research seminars. Now that you, I don't know if you remember. 
and then uh, go to the Berlinale Film Festival for a good movie afterwards. So thank you for that. Um, and after a few years of full professorship in cognitive science uh, in Switzerland at the University of Basel, he decided to return to uh, Germany, to the Max Planck, uh, where he is now a managing director of the institute and uh, the director of a center called ARC, Adaptive Rationality Center. Uh, the reason, uh, I can tell you more, but it's, it's, it's an opportunity hard to pass. Max Planck effectively funds any research project you can think of, big or small, uh, you have pre-approved funding, so all your brain is on actually designing studies and doing research. Um, so Ralph's uh, work is fascinating and unique. Each project is kind of different because he collaborates, and that's how the center is built, with scholars across the natural and social sciences. He collaborates with um, biologists, historians, philosophers, of course economists and psychologists and ask these kind of fundamental but controversial questions that then kind of challenge existing theories or existing practices. And we see tonight application to um, the practice of uh, public policy. He has over 264 peer-reviewed papers the last time I checked, and it was pretty complex, pick one paper to talk about. So I used a, a simple heuristic of this paper that is most cited which is a 2004 psychological science paper uh, where he and the co-authors introduce this new theory of risky choice and introduces a new language for decisions called decisions from experience. And that is a key distinction that we we'll see matters to his talk uh, tonight and matters to policymakers as well. Um, for all of this great work, he got several awards, um, including, I want to mention, the. Leibniz Prize uh, in 2017, um, which comes with um, a good endowment, I imagine. Um, and he's, he's been featured in media and so on. And here in the UK, I think last time um, I saw a provocative piece was uh, on The Guardian, um, where his work with uh, historian Dagmar Ellerbrock was, was covered, um, asking questions like, if you if you knew that the secret police had a file on you and you could check it, would you? Um, so with that question, I'm ready to hand over to Ralph. I'm not giving the talk. Um, I wanted to remind everybody that the event will be ending at 7.45, will be followed by a reception afterwards, hosted by uh, Professor Adam Oliver. Uh, we will have some questions from here and from the online audience, um, if possible. Uh, for those of you who are Twitters or ex-users, uh, the hashtag was before, uh, hashtag LSE um, Hayek. We are recording, so can we please all have the phone on silent? And I suppose we're all mute online. And now that please join me in welcoming to here to the lecture, Professor Ralph Kirkby. Okay, good evening everybody, um, and thank you very much Barbara for your really generous uh, introduction. Is it loud enough? It's not loud enough? Okay, there is somebody who is going to... Now? Is it better? Okay, now it's better. 
Uh, and also thank you very much, Adam, for inviting me. Uh, and thank you for your interest tonight. Uh, I could imagine that you have other things to do, but uh, here you are. Thank you very much. Um, and indeed, um, the title says it. I would like to talk about ways to empower citizens with behavioral science. And so what it means is that I will also contrast this approach to what has become very well known and highly influential, the nudging approach. Um, and uh, I will go with you through a couple of conceptual arguments before I give you a few examples of what we call boosting or boosts. Um, but I thought that before I go to these conceptual arguments, I should give you at least an idea of what, what is it that I could possibly mean with boosts. Uh, and, and the hope is that you can hold on to that and... Okay, is it now better? Okay, now no, it's perfect. Okay, thank you very much. Um, and so let me give you one example. Uh, and this first example deals with, I would say, a minor public policy problem. So it's not a huge one, but nevertheless, people die uh, in these kind of accidents and other people get injured. And it's actually an extremely well-known problem. It's also a time-honored problem. It's probably as old as cars are. Uh, and you're all familiar with it. It's car dooring. Uh, so it's basically the problem that when people drive uh, their car to the side of the street and park, uh, and then uh, they don't, when they get out of the car, they don't look around, they don't pivot, uh, open the door, and the bicycle is, is possibly running into uh, the door and gets terribly hurt uh, or can even die in the, in the worst case. Now, uh, it's not that many people die of it, and it's also that not many people uh, get injured. I mean, it's not a huge number. Nevertheless, for instance, in the UK, about two out of five adults argue that that's one of the reasons why I don't cycle in the city, because I'm afraid of these kind of accidents. Now, you may wonder, so what can we do as policymakers uh, to reduce that risk. And in a way, you see here, that's the traditional way of uh, telling people about the risk and basically telling them to please watch out, both to the bicyclists here on the, on the left side, uh, but also, of course, to the car drivers themselves, that they should be more careful and they should pivot. But the problem, of course, is, and we all experience that, you sit in a car, uh, you listen to the radio, or, uh, or you are under time pressure, and you leave the car and you don't look around. So the question is, what can we do? Uh, and here's a very simple intervention. And it's, in my view, what I mean with competence formation, or what I mean with empowerment, or the, the building of competences. It's uh, what is uh, called in the literature the Dutch reach. The Dutch reach is very simple uh, and very straightforward. Essentially, it's the idea that uh, when you leave the car, you don't open the door with the hand next to the door but you do it with the other hand that is further away. And if you do that, you cannot help but to turn around, you pivot, and basically suddenly you look at the blind spot. Um, now, that's a very simple um, behavior that you could routinize uh, and that you can do in order to prevent these kind of accidents. Now, rightly so, you would argue, yeah, but I may then forget again in the situation unless I have really routinized it. Uh, and for that reason, there's one other little intervention. You basically give yourself a memory prompt. Uh, you, for instance, tie a red ribbon to the door handle, and this red ribbon reminds you, oh, there was something I was supposed to do. Right, I was supposed to use the other hand. 
that is further away from the door. Now, this is a very nice example for giving people, giving citizens a little bit of extra education competences in order to deal with a public policy problem. And it's really up to them whether they use it or not, um, but it basically teaches them a new ability. Now, this is what I have in mind. Uh, so what, what I mean with that is that uh, boosting doesn't mean that we have to send people back to schools. Boosting can be very efficient, it can be very cost, uh, it can be effective, and it can be efficient. Uh, and here's one example of it. Okay, but um, before I talk about more boosts, let's go back and look at some conceptual arguments. And I would like to start here with a quote that I recently came across, and I would love to ask you guys whether you have any idea who wrote this quote? Who is the author of this quote? Uh, let me read it to you. Uh, I, I really like it a lot. Um, so the person says, uh, whoever it is, it's now widely recognized that great chances must be made to our way of life. Not only can we not face the rest of the world while consuming and polluting as we do, we cannot for long face ourselves while acknowledging the violence and the chaos in which we live. The choice is clear. Either we do nothing and allow a miserable and probably catastrophic future to overtake us, or, and that's now my emphasis, we use our knowledge about human behavior to create a social environment in which we shall live productive and creative lives, and do so without jeopardizing the chances that those who follow us will be able to do the same. Any idea who the author of those lines is? See? No, it's not Hayek. It's not Al Gore. Al Gore? Not bad. No, no, it's also not Al Gore. No, also not. Any idea when this was written? When was it written? Ten years ago, twenty years ago? Well, if you do collective intelligence and would aggregate all the numbers, then we would be right. It's about 50 years ago. It was written in 1976, and the author was B.F. Skinner. B.F. Skinner wrote that. So B.F. Skinner, the psychologist and father of behaviorism, uh, the, basically the inventor of uh, instrumental learning and reinforcement schedules and so on, uh, he wrote this pretty, uh, it's actually, I find it relatively boring, but still interesting to read. He wrote this utopian novel, uh, Walton II. Uh, and, uh, in a pref and he wrote that in 1948. So he wrote it right after the Second World War, in which he basically applied behaviorism in order to basically shape the world in a different way, to make it more possible that people are happy and reach the kind of goals that they want to reach. Now, when he used the word, we use our knowledge about human behavior, he meant his theory. Uh, and at the time, that's what he tried to do. He tried to create a behavioral public policy that would allow us to construct a better world. Now, I think it's fair to say that he was very successful in many applied areas, but it didn't amount to a behavioral public policy that we know today. But of course, uh, today, we also have a much richer understanding and a much richer knowledge about uh, human behavior. Now, what is interesting that the problems that he pointed to 50 years ago, they haven't gone away. If anything, then these problems have gotten even worse. Uh, and I just wanted to basically 
mention these three pro um, the problems that he's mentioning because we are facing them right now and we face them today. And let me start uh, just, I mean, I know that you all know them, but uh, let me use this great graphic here because it also shows how far-reaching uh, the impact of climate change can be and to what extent we, our welfare, our health, and our well-being is affected by it. This is a wonderful graph by the National Center for Environmental Health. And basically, it shows in the uh, inner circle uh, the, the vicious cycle of increasing ca uh, carbon dioxide uh, footprint. And as a result of that, uh, uh, rising temperatures, more extreme weather events, which again lead to rising sea levels, which again lead uh, to more carbon dioxide in the air. And this has consequences for the environment, for nature in terms of severe weather, extreme heat, environmental degradation, water and food supply impact, and so on, and so on, and so on. And that in turn, of course, affects us. It affects us in a variety of way in terms of forced migration, civil conflict, mental health impact, heat-related illness, injuries, asthma, and so on, and so on, and so on. And there are people who argue that it's really only one crisis that we currently have. I mean, other people would argue we have a polycrisis, many interconnected crises, but some people would argue that's the crisis of all crises. That causes all other crises, such as, for instance, and in, in a way, uh, Skinner was talking about that too, Another crisis that we are currently facing uh, in Europe, but far beyond Europe, is the state of liberal democracies. Uh, and I'm sure that many of you are familiar with these kind of graphs that show the liberal democracy index, which goes back to the Democracy Institute. And the Democracy Institute is basically looking at different benchmarks of the state of liberal democracies around the, around the world. And what you see here is that in, for about 10 years, we are basically experiencing a backsliding of dem uh, uh, democracy around the world. And there are other uh, indicators that you can quantify, such as, for instance, uh, when in 2011, toxic polarization was observed in five countries. In 2021, it's in 32 countries. Uh, if the number of countries that threatened freedom of speech were five in 2011, Currently, we are, well, 2021, it's 35. And look at this number, which is also equally scary. In uh, 2011, 49% of the population, worldwide population, lived in authoritarian states. In 2021, we are speaking of 70% of the world population who lives under those circumstances. Um, and with that, let me come maybe to a final uh, challenge uh, in which human behavior also plays an enormous role. And it's a challenge that Skinner would not have anticipated. And it's the challenge of AI and the potential opportunities, but also the potential risks that come with it. Uh, this is an open letter that was published, uh, among others, in the New York Times, uh, in which a group of thousand uh, scientists and researchers and owners of the big companies uh, we're basically uh, speaking of an out-of-control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds, and they were calling for a six-month pause on the development of the largest uh, AI models at this point. Now, if you think about how we are supposed to solve this problem, then, of course, human behavior is one key 
is, is one key factor that we need to conceptualize, think about, and possibly change. If we think about how to steer human behavior and prevent harms, uh, I think it's important to keep in mind that there won't be any one solution to it. That in the end, what we need in all likelihood for many of these problems is a smart policy mix. A policy mix in which law and ethics regulation, in which technology, in which school education, and in which also psychological and social sciences have to play a role. Now, I say this so clearly because I don't think that boosting is the solution to this problem. I also don't think that nudging is the solution to this problem. I do think that we have to play a role, but we sh should see it in a larger picture. We should see it as a smart policy mix. That would be my argument. Now, um, of course, in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of the public attention was drawn to the nudging approach. Uh, and I think this is the great uh, achievement, and they deserve all the thanks in the world uh, for bringing the behavioral science evidence to the public forum of Rick, uh, Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein. That's an enormous achievement uh, that we as behavioral scientists cannot be grateful for enough. But I would also argue that uh, what these two authors did is they brought a certain view of human cognition to the public forum that is not necessarily rep representing the balance of the empirical record in psychology. Uh, so let's look at a few of the assumptions about the human mind that you find in Thales and Sunstein's, uh, Sunstein's writing. Uh, and I, I bet that many of you are familiar with that, but let me repeat it anyhow. According to Dick Thaler, and that goes back to his early work, uh, going back to his collaboration also with Danny Kahneman and uh, Amos Tversky, he considers mental illusions, these are the kind of cognitive biases that the Heuristics and Biases program became very famous uh, for demonstrating, that mental illusions should be considered the rule rather than the exception. And think about it, this is a very strong claim. So mental illusions are not the exceptions. They are not at the margin of our behavior. They are at the core of the behavior. They are the rule rather than the exceptions. And in this path-breaking paper, the American Economic Review paper in 2003, they say people do not exhibit rational expectations. They fail to make forecasts that are consistent with base rules. They use heuristics that lead them to make systematic blunders. People exhibit preference reversals, and they make different choices depending on the wording of the problem. And then uh, in the nudge book itself, there are more of these descriptive and often, of course, also very evaluative statements about the human mind. We are somewhat mindless, passive decision makers. We often make mistakes because we rely too much on our automatic system. And many people also have motivational problems. They take whatever option requires the least effort or the path of least resistance. And we are characterized by inertia, the status quo bias, and the yeah, whatever heuristic. Now, in this sense, in this sense, people seem like loose cannons. And if you accept that premise, then it also makes perfect sense to invest in a choice architecture. Because you cannot really rely on people to be allies. 
you cannot rely on them because they are, you know, uh, they make all these mistakes and they are inert uh, and they have self-control problems. So in that sense, the real innovation of the nudging approach, in my view, is the emphasis on the choice architecture. And it follows from that particular synthesis of the research record. And uh, Thaler and Sunstein uh, in 2008, 2029, define a nudge basically in terms of an architectural nudge. A nudge, as we will use the term, is any aspect of the choice architecture that alters people's behavior in a predictable way without forbidding any options or significantly changing their economic incentives. Now, a few years later, then, Kassanstein uh, in a paper uh, proposes the distinction between architectural nudges that we are all familiar with, defaults, friction, positional effects, and educative nudges. Now, my personal interpretation, and it may be self-serving, is that educative nudges was, to some extent, a response to boosting. Um, but it's a very narrow interpretation of education. It's a narrow interpretation in terms of warnings, in terms of reminders, in terms of disclosure of information. It's very different from the kind of education or formation of competences that uh, we have in mind when we talk about boosting. Now, let me also point to a few, I mean, there's no question, nudging was incredibly and is incredibly influential around the world, uh, and it deserved for their impact also a lot uh, of admiration. But there's also serious criticism that uh, was raised, and uh, I will not go into much detail of that criticism, but I want to at least remind you, because for us, it was the reason why we also thought about alternatives. So there is the criticism that was raised that nudging and only investing into choice architecture interventions undermines, or at least there is a risk, of undermining people's autonomy, to some extent their agency, and certainly their self-efficacy. Uh, that's an important concept that comes out of the work of Albert Bandura, and it's people's belief about their capabilities to produce effects. Um, if you only steer behavior through choice architecture, it's almost impossible to get the feeling that uh, you are the ones who's bringing about the kind of effects that you want to see. There's also the argument that um, the reversibility, which is a key criterion for the libertarian paternalistic paternalism for the libertarian part of libertarian paternalism. So uh, being able to undo the effect of nudging constitutes the reversibility. But Rebonato in his really very insightful book uh, points out that reversibility in principle is not the same as reversibility in practice. If people are really so inert, if they really make constant errors, why can we be certain that people can actually revert the effect of the nudge uh, if otherwise we trust them so little. There's also the problem of preference identification. Nudges can only be successful and ethical if the policymakers know what makes individuals better off in the long run by their own standards. But as we know, there's often a heterogeneity of preferences, and it's not that easy to figure out what people's preferences are, but typically we respond to that heterogeneity of preferences with a one-size-fits-all nudge. There's also the issue, at least conceptually speaking, of how long-lasting a behavior change is. Think about it. If 
the political situation changes and an intervention in a choice architecture is being changed because a, political, a different political party is voted into power, then it may well be that the very behavior that we wanted to change reverts back to the pre-nudge level. So in other words, there is always the risk, at least conceptually speaking, that our behavior change that we try to achieve is not long-lasting because it's so contingent on the choice architecture itself, because we haven't invested into people. Uh, and there's also another problem that I find conceptually interesting, namely that nudging interventions, they should occur in the public space, right? And they shouldn't intervene in people's, uh, in the privacy of their homes. But that also means that a lot of the kind of behaviors that potentially can cause all kinds of detrimental effects, health effects, wealth effects, happen in the privacy of people's homes. But in a way, we leave them alone in their homes. Uh, we deal with them in the public space, but not where most of our behavior occurs, in the privacy of our homes. Uh, and let me point out two more um, criticisms that we have raised. And when I say we, uh, let me really acknowledge my colleague here, Til Grüne Janov, who uh, is a philosopher at Stockholm University. And a lot of the work, for reasons that are not totally clear to me, I did with philosophers in that domain. Basically, I guess, because they are so good at thinking about conceptual issues and it's just fun uh, to, to do that with them. And uh, Till and I had great fun doing that. So two arguments that we were pointing out is that I, I wrote these statements about the human mind that uh, Cass Sunstein and uh, Dick Thaler wrote in their books in different publications. And I think this is not a good representation of the balance of the uh, empirical record. I would argue that the balance of the empirical record by no mean, means implies that betting on human competences and rationality is a lost cause. And I would also argue that there are several major reasons why we should invest in people and not just in choice architectures. And you hear what I'm saying is I'm not saying that we should not invest in choice architectures because they are important driver of behavior. But in my view, we should also invest in people. And I tell you in a second why I think that. Now, let me first give you a, a first impression of what the, the balance of the empirical evidence is. And uh, you all know that feeling. You go to an academic bookstore and you may end up in a psychology department or if it's a very sophisticated bookstore, then you also end up in a decision science department if there is one. And then you read all these books, and they seem to suggest, yeah, people really suck. Uh, they are predictably irrational, they are irrationally exuberant, uh, they uh, are misbehaving, uh, that's uh, Richard Taylor's newest book. And of course, there's the most famous one, Thinking Fast and Slow. And you can easily walk away with the impression, yeah, people are really bad at making decisions. Uh, but you can also, if it's a, it's a bookstore that also offers you a, a wider view, then you can easily find very successful books that actually convey a very different message. There's, for instance, Gary Klein, the founder of Natural Decision-Making Research in Psychology. So he's the guy who went out studying police officers, nurses, firefighters, and he wrote a book, The Power of Intuition, in which he, ad he admires people's ability to make good decisions, professionals to make good decisions. Or think of Robin Hogarth, Educating Intuition. 
uh, or think of Gerd Gigerenzer, risk savvy, uh, or think of Steven Pinker, rationality, or think of more applied books such as The Checklist by Atul Gawande, who basically argues that with very simple means like checklists, we can really improve medical decision making enormously. So in other words, if you go into a bookstore, you get to also see a very different view on human decision making. And I want to give you one more argument uh, as to why that is important and also what may explain why we have in psychology and behavioral economics such a almost conflicting or opposed view on how good or bad people are uh, in their reasoning. And let me for that uh, illustration turn to statistical reasoning. Now statistical reasoning is basically dealing with risk and uncertainty. That's the kind of research uh, that was the beginning of heuristics and biases. And a lot of the cognitive illusions, base rate fallacy, conjunction fallacy, and so on and so on, they deal with statistical reasoning. And one of the core arguments at the time, and actually even today, is how good or bad are people in terms of Bayesian reasoning. Now Bayesian reasoning, as many of you know, is the pillar is one of the pillars of rational choice theory, right? If we don't reason Bayesian, if we don't update uh, our beliefs in a Bayesian way, then we never can be rational. So why, that's the reason why this became such an important issue. And Kahneman and Tversky, based on their experimental papers, in 1972 concluded, in his evaluation of evidence, men, people, uh, are apparently not a conservative Bayesian, He's not Bayesian at all. Now, there's an interesting term here, conservative Bayesian. With that, they referred to a line of research that came out of the 1950s and 60s, and uh, that concerned the work by Ward Edwards and his colleagues. Ward Edwards is the founder of behavioral decision-making research in psychology, and he started the work on studying Bayesian reasoning in an empirical way. Now, Edwards, looking back at his research, and we are talking about many experiments, concluded opinion change is very orderly and usually proportional to numbers calculated from Bayes' theorem, but it's insufficient in amount. So what he's basically saying that people are pretty good Bayesians, they are a bit too conservative because they stick too much to the base rates and don't update enough, but basically they are Bayesians. And think about it, that was 1968. Four years later, Kahneman and Tversky came around and basically rebuked, uh, rebuked uh, Edwards and told him, told him off and told him, go away, you're wrong. They are not conservative Bayesians. We are no Bayesians at all. And in a way, I would argue both are right. But how can that be? How can they both be right? Well, we try to figure that out when I say we, I mean, Thomas Lejaraga and myself in his paper a few years ago, in which we raised the argument that it could be that these conflicting views stem from very different experimental protocols. Uh, protocols that we, in terms of Kahneman-Tursky, called description-based and experience-based in terms of Ward Edwards. What does that mean? That sounds abstract. Now, I need to walk you through one of the typical tasks that has been used by Kahneman and Tursky to study Bayesian reasoning. It's very boring. Uh, you will be surprised how boring it is. Uh, but I need to torture you anyhow. Uh, so that's the typical task that Kahneman and Tversky have used. Consider two urns denoted A and B, 
which are filled with a large number of colored balls. Urn A contains 70% red balls and 30% blue balls. Urn B contains 30% red balls and 70% blue balls. I told you it's boring. <laughs> One urn has been selected by chance and 12 colored balls have been drawn at random from it of which eight are red and four are blue. Did you get it? Now here comes the question. What do you think the probability is that the 12 balls were drawn from urn A, which is from the urn that is predominantly red? You have exactly one chance to give an estimate, and based on that estimate, I will then tell you that you're a Bayesian, a conservative Bayesian, or no Bayesian at all. Now, typically, is somebody daring an answer? Typically, these kind of studies lead to the result that people are really bad Bayesians. Now, what did what Edwards do? Now, the fascinating thing is what Edwards did these kind of urn experiments. And he started out also with the text that there are two urns uh, and they have a certain composition of red and blue balls. But then once uh, the experimenter picks one of the urns, the urn is instantiated. There's suddenly an urn, not suddenly, there is an urn, and the experimenter draws from that urn. And he does it one time, or she, and I asked the question, what is the revised probability that the selected urn is the predominantly red one? Then the experimenter draws the next ball, uh, and the next ball, and the next ball, and the next ball, 12 balls. You give 12 estimates. And then you do that not only once, but you do it with different proportions many, many times. So by the end of the day, you not have one estimate, you have hundreds. You have hundreds of estimates. And the question that, um, that we try to ask, and that's very representative, that was our hypothesis, of the kind of experiments that were done in the program that was started by Ward Edwards. It's called the Intuitive, Stati the Intuitive Statistician Program. And Kahneman and Tversky did something totally different. They took what Ward Edwards did and turned it into descriptions, into vignettes, into text-based symbolic forms. And you typically had one or few answers, and based on that, you were considered to be Bayesian or not, or you were following the conjunction rule or not, and so on. Now, what we did is, we went back to that research in the, five, in the 1950s and 60s, and to the research after, with Kahneman-Tversky and after Kahneman-Tversky. We analyzed a total of 604 experiments in terms of the methodology being used. We were looking at these kind of dimensions, whether there was feedback given, whether there was practice opportunities, whether stimuli were physically present or invoked descriptively, whether there was multiple testing, and whether stimuli were about objects or uh, people. And I can tell you right away, Kahneman and Tversky did research about people, Linda task, uh, Tom W. problem, and so on. What Edwards did problems about chance events, urns, um, balls, uh, dice, and so on. But what were the other differences? Now, here you see the difference across these uh, 600 experiments. Basically, in the poor performance tradition, that's Kahneman and Tversky, heuristics and biases, and the many followers later, there's hardly any ever feedback. There's hardly any ever practice. The stimuli are descriptively invoked. They are never physically instantiated. There is multiple testing. I'll say more about that in a minute. And the stimuli are people and not objects. In the Ward Edwards tradition, intuitive statistical reasoning, there is in half of the experiments there is feedback. Uh, there's often practice trials. Stimuli are physically instantiated. There is multiple testing. 
and the stimuli are objects rather than people. Let me say one word on the multiple testing, and that drives the difference really home. In a good performance view, we have a me across these experiments a median of 77 answers that people give. Actually, the mean is 417. In a poor performance view, the median answer is three. You have three chances, three strikes, and you are out. Um, and the mean is eight. And I think this is really striking. I couldn't believe it when I saw it, because I think what happened, and I'm not saying that was intentional or ill-meaning or whatever, but it was a methodological innovation that was brought about by Kahneman and Tversky in the field of judgment decision-making. It happened also in other fields, by the way that basically made experimentation much cheaper, much faster, because you could now use these vignettes, and you didn't, and, and they didn't feel like they have to collect many data from one subject. Uh, one answer is enough to basically conclude that you are good or bad, bad Bayesian. And we argue in this particular paper that this methodological change explains a lot of why there is this enormous difference between the uh, Ward Edwards kind of tradition and judgment decision-making and today's heuristics and biases. And until today, we are basically using vignettes. We are basically using text-based way of studying people. Uh, and we are, and that's fascinating because, come on, psychology is the field of learning, right? I mean, Skinner, remember? We are the field of learning but somehow in decision-making, judgment decision-making, we seem to have forgotten about the importance of learning. Now, so I do think that if you look at the balance of the record, uh, there is a point to be made for empowerment and for competence. People can learn. And I would argue that for this reason, because of the empirical record, uh, these kind of investments are not a fool's errand. Uh, and I, in fact, would argue it's absolutely needed. Why would I think so? Let me give you three arguments. Um, there are more, but these are for me key arguments. I think we need to empower people because we also face them and confront them with what I've called ultra-processed environments. And I'll tell you in a second what I mean with that. What are ultra-processed environments? Uh, and we cannot let them alone in dealing with these environments. Uh, I also make, would make the argument that if we think about the global challenges, in all of them, human behavior plays a role. And in many of them, we need competent and active citizens. But we only get them, we only get competence and active citizens and agency if we also invest in that. And I give you later an example of that. And there is also the ethical dimension of it. Uh, there is a lot of research in psychology by Ryan and others also in this meta-analysis here in Psychological Bulletin that shows that there's an ethical intrinsic value of agency and competence development. Nurturing basic psychological needs for autonomy, competence, and relatedness do facilitate learning and do facilitate behavior change. And also, by the way, they contribute to greater life satisfaction, well-being, and positive health outcomes. Again, I'm not saying that we should not change choice architectures. I'm saying we should do both. We should also invest into people. Now, let me just walk you in more detail through the ultra-processed environment, because that's particularly dear to my heart. Now, you all know this. This is a paradigmatic example of ultra-processed food. 
some people would argue it's not even clear that it's really food. Um, it's basically what it is. It's uh, a high point of uh, science, of the application of science. This is one of the most sophisticated consumer product you could imagine. There's hardly any aspect of Pringles that has not been studied. Whether it's the shape, whether it's the taste, whether it's the color, whether it's the naming, whether it's the packaging, whether it's the sound when you bite on it, whether it's the feeling of crispiness, this has all, and these are just a few examples of the kind of studies that are available. Now it's very clear, so much research went into it for one purpose only, right? It's clear which purpose it is. I mean, once you open it, you should not stop eating it. And by the way, then of course you should get, go back and buy more of it. That's the purpose. Uh, and this is just one of the example of ultra-processed foods. An ultra-processed basically means that these are foods that would not naturally occur in the world. These are foods that are high in salt, often sugar, oils, and fats, and they include all kinds of ingredients such as flavors, colors, foams, thickening agents, glazing agents, emulsifiers, and so on and so on. Now, at this point, it's estimated that nearly 60% of the daily calories that are consumed by U.S. adults come from ultra-processed food. And for kids and teenagers, the estimate is it's almost 70%. Now, here comes an interesting, for also, for, I think, for uh, economists, an interesting finding. This uh, was a finding from last year, fascinating, that actually the consumption of that food changes our preferences as we speak, as we eat. Daily consumption of high-fat, high-sugar snacks alter reward circuits in the human brain, and they reduce the preference for low-fat food. So while we are consuming it and eating it, our preferences change online. Uh, and there's, of course, the argument and empirical evidence that uh, ultra-processed foods have a high addictive potential and an increased risk of all-cause mortality by 25%. Now, Food, and the food domain is only one area in which we are dealing with what one could call ultra-processed environments and consumer goods. If you think about the digital world, that's the perfect conditioning machine. That's the perfect ultra-processed choice architecture that has, again, most of the time, the function of profit maximization, um, which is not per se bad or evil, but of course, it can be in a real conflict with your health, with your well-being, uh, and with your happiness. Now, this is increasingly recognized also in the medical sciences, and it has led to this research that today is called the commercial determinants of health. Uh, and for instance, last year in Lancet, there was uh, a paper that concluded there is growing evidence that the products in... Oh, no, it's back. I think it's back. Um, there's growing evidence that the products and practices of some commercial actors, notably the largest transnational corporations, are responsible for escalating rates of avoidable ill health, planetary damage, and social and health inequity. These problems are increasingly referred to as the commercial determinants of health. If you want to get really upset, read that book. <laughs> and there's also the really interesting paper by Nick Jader and George Lowenstein in which they make the argument that one of the rhetorical strategies of various industries is 
to basically cast these problems in terms of individual responsibility and individual weakness. Uh, and that means that you're responsible for it if you can control your consumption of uh, ultra-processed food, if you cannot control your consum consumption in a digital world. That's your problem. Uh, it's not the industry's fault, but it's the weakness of the individual one. And again, I don't want to blame uh, the nudging researchers uh, for portraying a particular, uh, a particular way of how we are as people, but of course, this is, the, this is the perfect argument that could also easily be used uh, by the industry. And that's a bit of the argument that Nick Jader and George Lowenstein have proposed. Now, if I could convince you, <laughs> perhaps I did, that next to nudging, we need to invest in people. Um, and this was uh, the starting point of uh, our thinking about it, of Till Grüne uh, and Grüne Janov and myself. And let me talk uh, you uh, through a few examples of boosting, just that you get an impression what could we possibly mean with that. Um, so boosting is a policy approach that targets people's competences and thereby should help people make good informed decisions by and for themselves. Um, and it is an intervention that can enlist human cognition, but it can also enlist the environment. It doesn't need to only happen in the mind, it can also happen in interaction with the environment or both to foster people's existing consequence, uh, competences also or develop new ones. Now, I can spell that out in much more detail. Uh, and in this table, we basically talked about the different uh, conceptual differences between nudging and boosting. But perhaps the most important one is this first one that boosting doesn't try to change behavior in the first place. Behavior change can be a result uh, of competence enhancement, but it's not the target. In nudging, I would argue, that is the target. You want to change behavior, in boosting, you want to change competences. Let me talk about two more differences that are important. Uh, one important difference is, the, again, the conceptual longevity of the intervention. Uh, and I talked about that earlier. Once in boosting, at least conceptually, nudging, at least conceptually speaking, if we undo the change in the choice architecture, chances are that the behavior is going to revert back to the pre-nudge level, and we have nothing achieved. Uh, and we are living in highly volatile political times. Things can change. Choice architecture decisions can change. Now, in boosting the, at least concept, conceptually speaking, the idea is that if we have enhanced the competence, think about the Dutch reach, that should last. And it should last independent of what public policymakers want or do, or different ones want or do. And there's a normative implication, namely that boosting is an offer to citizens. Uh, it does require that people engage with the boost. Think about the Dutch reach again. If people are not interested, uh, if they are not motivated to learn it, they won't learn it, and it won't have an effect. But it, what, what it means is, it's also highly transparent, and it's the choice of the citizen whether or not he or she engages with the boost. Now, in nudging, and that's an argument that has repeatedly been raised, is that there is at least a risk that autonomy concerns are violated, and there is also the issue of transparency. Uh, to what extent people see that their behavior change and understand the mechanism that underlies their behavior change. 
Now, in, in boosting, I would argue that's very to oh, that's totally transparent. Okay. Now, let me end this uh, with uh, gi giving you a, at least a few examples of boosts uh, after all these conceptual arguments. Uh, and uh, if you're interested, there's a boosting website which tries to keep track of the ongoing research. But let me give you three examples. And let me not uh, be misunderstood here. What I'm showing you are individual examples. I'm not saying these are solving the problems, but I'm giving you them as illustrations for what boosting could mean. Uh, I'll give you an example for how to deal with disinformation in a digital world. There are other boosting interventions of that sort. I want to give you a great way of uh, how, uh, avoiding the loss of control over your digital consumption. Uh, I think you will love it. And I will tell you about bedtime math. Um, so these are the three examples. There are many others, but they are quite il illustrative. Now, you know this problem. Um, you are uh, Googling for particular content. You want to figure out uh, what are the causes of climate change. Uh, and then you, Google offers you certain websites, and this is one of the websites that you're being offered. It's actually, uh, I checked it yesterday, it's a, a very convincing website. There are lots of um, scientific looking figures and text and references. It's very convincing. It's the Center for the Study of Carbon Dioxide and Global Change. Uh, and basically uh, argues that we are going to inform you about the newest evidence there is as to climate change. Uh, now the question that you're not familiar with that website, nor are you familiar with this center, and the question uh, that is in your mind is whether or not you should trust it. The problem here is that we are really bad at figuring out whether or not we can trust a website. Uh, the person who invented this intervention is Sam Weinberg, He's an educational scientist from Stanford University and he was studying his own colleagues and his own students, often considered to be the best students in the world. They are really bad at figuring out whether a website is credible or not. And the reasons are good ones, namely that what we typically try to do is we critically think. That's what we have learned in schools and at the university. And we basically look at the content, try to think through the content. We look at surface features, such as whether there is scientific evidence, whether there are references, whether there are graphs. And based on that, we make a judgment whether we trust it or not. Problem is, this can all very much be fabricated by now. I mean, you can basically create a very convincing website that otherwise peddles uh, pretty bad information. So what Sam Weinberg was arguing is we need to use a different strategy. We cannot just rely on our critical thinking. We need to do something else. And basically what he suggested is that why don't we do what professional fact checkers do? Professional fact checkers don't look at the website. They immediately leave the website and check the credibility, check the credibility of the producers of the website. So in other words, they leave the page and search the web to see what others, whether it's Wikipedia, news organizations, or other trustworthy institutions, say about the source and its claims. So in other words, the idea here is use the internet to check on the internet. That's what they called, uh, that's, what, that's, that's, what they, <laughs> that's what they call lateral reading. It's not vertical reading, you're not staying on the website, you literally read, you step outside of the website. 
we actually have called that an instance of critical ignoring, which is a fascinating concept. Uh, I can tell you about it another time, not today. Um, There's a reception afterwards, so we can ah, Okay, great, wonderful. <laughs> and lateral reading actually has been shown to be really working uh, across numerous uh, studies uh, with in, in many different uh, countries and with many uh, participants. Now, what would that mean, for instance, in the current case? So all you do on what fact-checkers do is they, for instance, Google carbon dioxide signs, then the website itself shows up, and then you find entries such as this, and there are others who converge. And for instance, Wikipedia would tell you at this point, now you should be aware that this particular center is seen as a front group for the fossil fuels industry. Uh, and what that means is that, I mean, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't trust it. Uh, well, I'll take that back. Uh, what it means is that you enter that website, if you still want to enter it, with a certain mindset, with a very critical mindset, and also know that there may be a particular perspective being offered to you. So the idea is not immediately engage with the content, but first stepping out of the website and checking who the producer of that website is. Now, again, don't get me wrong. This is not going to solve the misinformation, disinformation problem. Uh, there are, you need more than one intervention. And you need more, you need, I mean, there's regulation, there's technology, there's school education. But this, and by the way, Sam Weinberg, being an educational scientist, he is now really working toward bringing uh, lateral reading into school curricula. Now, let me give you a different example, uh, which at least I love, and, and you may like it too, uh, and, and <laughs> I'm not earning any money here, so <laughs> but I, I really like it. It's one sec, uh, and it actually came out of the work that we've been doing in, in Berlin at our center. Um, so the problem here is, and you're all familiar with that, uh, that you're in the middle of your work, and suddenly there's this impulse that you could check on the social media, on your favorite social media or website and see whether something else is going on. Or you check on your email. Uh, and there you are interrupted and 20 minutes of your time is gone by the time you realize that you should be going back to work. Now, what OneSec is, it's a so-called self-nudging app. And I'll tell you more about self-nudging in a second, but first let me tell you about this app. So let's assume that, for instance, you want to click on Instagram uh, and see what's going on in Instagram most recently. And you do so, and then what happens is that it doesn't open up, but instead this app opens up, produces some friction, only for three seconds. It tells you how often in the last 24 hours you have opened Instagram, it interrupts your behavior for three seconds, and then asks you, do you really want to open it? That's all it does. Nothing else. So you're still free to open it and do whatever you want. And this little introduction of self-imposed friction has an enormous effect. Uh, it, so here's a study that these guys did. Uh, in the first week, there were 100, on average, uh, across the subject, 166 um, attempted openings uh, of whatever website people were interested in or wanted to control. And by six weeks later, that has been reduced to 105. So this is an average reduction of nearly 40% of app openings across six weeks. This is an enormous effect. Um, now, this, this thing is 
available, you can download it, you can try it out. And I, by now, I, I encounter many people who have done that and are fascinated by how, quick, how quickly it has positive effects, the kind of effects they want. The app itself has all kinds of features that you could also change. So instead of three seconds, you could also wait 20 seconds if you, need the, if you feel like more time is needed. But the important point is it's self-imposed. You do it. And that's what we really mean with self-nudging. Self-nudging is a category of boosting. So what happens here is that you become the citizen choice architect. You choose to use nudging principles that have been used in the public sphere to be adapted for use in the private sphere. But only if you wanted to and the way you wanted to. Uh, and I would argue that this idea of self-nudging, which means that we use um, nudging principles, should I speed up? Uh, yes, if you want questions. Okay, okay I speed up. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Finish your thought. Yeah. Okay. Um, we respect, it, it, in, in my view, it's a fantastic way of respecting people's autonomy and also promoting their agency and self-efficacy. Uh, and it solves a lot of the problems that in my view have been raised as criticism against nudging. Now again, this is not a solution to everything, but this is something we can do. It means basically we share our knowledge of psychology, and that's not rocket science, let's be honest. Positional effects, friction, uh, all these things, defaults, it's not rocket science. We can easily share that with citizens. And why should we not? Why should they not become competent citizen choice architects? Uh, and with that, let me uh, end with one final example, um, uh, which is a wonderful example also for boosting. Uh, and it's uh, research that has, done by, uh, has been done by Xian Bailog, who is a wonderful educational scientist, was published uh, a number of years ago in Science. And it deals also with a public policy problem, namely with math anxiety. In the US, it's estimated that 97% of adult US citizens uh, feel some sense of anxiety when they need to deal with numbers and with math. 70% of the student population says they have severe anxiety of math. And that has consequences both for, for their school success and also for professional careers. This costs them dearly. Uh, and what these authors were able to show is that if you, even as a math-anxious parent, read very little simplistic stories in the evening, for instance, about your cat, and end these stories with a math question. These are very simple questions which involve addition or subtraction or something, but it forces the kids and the parent, by the way, to deal with math. And what they were able to show is that, and it works even if you do it only once a week, and what they were able to show is that kids who were listening to these kind of bedtime math stories had an increase in their math competences that was translated into a nine-month uh, school year where the equivalent of three additional months of school teaching in math. That's an enormous effect. And we can do that. And we can do that with parents who are math anxious and we can do it with, with children who are math anxious. But that's a way of overcoming some of the anxiety there is. And with that, let me come to my conclusion. And let me go back to the pandemic because I, for me, the pandemic was for Verdam I and mean, for all of us, 
was a challenging but also a fascinating time because I was fascinated uh, as a behavioral scientist, I was fascinated about the fact that policymakers during the pandemic made desperate appeals to what needed to be active, pro-social, responsible and competent citizens. Think about it. We asked people to self-control. We asked them to stay at home. We asked them to change their working environment. We asked them to understand concepts such as exponential growth or R factors. We asked them to get vaccinated and understand risk communication. We wanted a competent, self-responsible, pro-social, active citizen. And I would argue that there are many great crises that we're dealing with in the world that require the same kind of capabilities. But such capable citizens don't come for free. They need investment. They need investment in the same sense as we are investing in choice architecture, we need to invest in people. We need to invest in schooling, lifelong learning, trust, positive liberty, and I would also argue in the, in the area of behavioral public policy, we need to invest in boosting, not just nudging. I hope I convinced you, but if not, I hope it was entertaining enough. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, your engaging presentation and the boosts. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to do it bedtime, but I have done, yeah, coming over here. Um, but I have downloaded it once I cap. I was just worried that I will not be able to get you on time and not, not be able to uh, use the screen. Uh, we have a reception planned. Adam, uh, I don't know, how long do you want me to go with, uh, with questions? Can we just have a few? Yeah, because at least we're all here, and let's see if online we want to chip in. Um, so Ralph is going to take uh, a question at a time. Um, make sure it's not too long, and you can say who you are quickly, just um, where are you coming from, as in affiliation. So uh, if you want to ask a question, please indicate it to the stewards with a roving mic, and um, start to raise your hand. Um, Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Uh, my name is Antonius, a PhD student from the UCL. Uh, so uh, my question is about the uh, comparison between the nudging and boosting. Uh, in my uh, perspective, the nudging is about the system one do uh, dominance, and the boosting is about how we train the system to if we uh, uh, borrow the terms from Kahneman. Uh, uh, is it there is 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 there any like a market target preference for this boosting? Let's say like a, a, a avid reader that have a knowledgeable uh, about the situation, because like a. Uh, in the Gen Z, like an uh, instant generation, like a uh, yeah, maybe that uh, quite lazy. It, it is better for nudging than the boosting. So, but my question is like, uh, is there any like a uh, market preference for this boosting? Thank you. Mm. Um, you said market preference. Is that what you said? Uh, sorry, uh, it's wrong terms. But like, uh, it's target like a. Uh, for like the, 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 the generation that are yeah. like quite lazy, it's better to use the nudging. Mm. 
or like a, it's the first step then boosting when when they they have the enough knowledge to have a boost something like that yeah i mean there Thank are you. two layers uh, in my answer the first answer is that um i'm and that may not surprise you i'm more critical of uh, system one system two distinction this is a very simplistic dichotomy of which Danny Kahneman in his book himself said he's using it only metaphorically. And I think what has happened over the years that we take that for granted, the distinction. And uh, indeed, there's very little evidence that we have these two, I mean, neuroscientific or cognitive evidence that we have these two um, uh, system uh, of thinking. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have routinized automatic processes and more deliberate processes, but they, many people think of them more as a continuum than system one, system two. That's one answer. Uh, the other answer is that I think you are raising an important point, namely uh, that indeed, if you want to boost people, it presupposes a certain level of motivation and it presupposes a certain level of cognitive abilities. And uh, I, I would argue that's a challenge uh, for the boosting approach, which often means that one way of dealing with that challenge is that you need to think about good ways of communicating the boost to people. And that means that, for instance, we need to think about these kind of apps that I showed you. We may think about games that make it easier to access and make it fun. Think of the bedtime story. So I also use these examples to show that Boosting doesn't need, doesn't need to be tiring and doesn't need to be an imposition on people. And if you think about, for instance, the Dutch reach, that's an intervention you all will, I bet with you that you won't forget this intervention anymore in all likelihood. And that was a, essentially a 30 second intervention. And I think that's important because I do remember that uh, when we started talking about boosting, there was the argument raised in the literature, oh, come on, that's just education. Education doesn't work. And education takes too much time and too much effort. And I hope I have convinced you with some of the examples that I gave you that this doesn't need to be the case. Boosting can, again, be very quick, very efficient, uh, and can be scaled up with various uh, ways of bringing that to the, to the public. Few questions. Can we go there? Yeah. Um, do you want to wait for Bayer or be Mike? Yes, please. Hi, thank you. Uh, I'm Bana. I'm a um, LSE student from the Master of Public Administration. I mean, I graduated last year, but still thinking I am a student. Um, just one question. I mean, what link do you make between uh, building habits? basically forcing yourself to acquire a new habit and uh, boosting. Mm -hmm. And is there any, I mean, uh, is that the same or completely different? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, actually, I think that's a question that one could both direct to nudging and boosting, because you could also argue that, uh, for instance, in terms of nudging, uh, nudging you sometimes have one-time events like a default, you are being defaulted into something and you are never engaging with that behavior again. So there we wouldn't necessarily e e expect uh, routinization or uh, the formation of habits to occur. But sometimes in nudging, if, you, if it's about repeated behavior, it could well be that uh, a change in a choice architecture also 
establishes routinized behavior. So, and, and that would be fine because then uh, we are not having the problem that the behavior reverts back once you remove the choice architecture. But that's a question that's hardly been discussed in the literature, which I find unfortunate, at least not to my knowledge. Now, of course, also in boosting, it's, it's, it's a similar issue. Uh, the, take again the Dutch reach, ideally what you want is to, you want this to become a habit. You also want the bedtime story telling uh, a kind of habit. But there are other boostings which are one-time boosts uh, where we are not talking about the repeated behavior. And then it's much less, uh, much less necessary to, to, to think of a habit. So I would say that habit formation uh, and boosting or nudging, uh, they, they both can go together. Uh, and, and in some cases, we do want uh, an habit to, uh, hap the formation of an habit to occur because then the likelihood increases that people will automatically show that behavior. That's a red ribbon on the handle. So let's see the hands. So was the hand right there? And then I'll go with the back. Yes, I'm Stefano Bohm from Oxford Sustainable Development Enterprise. We are dealing with data. And my question is regarding data. You don't think that a data-driven approach, and therefore this concept of evidence-based can, together with the, let's say, bottom-up approach or community building on data evidence, better convince politicians. So the question is, what about the data? Now, I would argue that in each of the interventions that I presented to you, there's lots of evidence available uh, that you could use in the public discourse with politicians. So whether you talk about lateral reading, whether you talk about bedtime math stories, uh, whether you uh, talk about other boosting but also nudging interventions, there is evidence available. And of course, you absolutely, we, th th I mean, that's the, the big innovation that I also credit um, Sunstein and Taylor for, namely that they brought empirical evidence into the forum. My argument would be that they are not necessarily presenting the balance of the data and of the record on human achievements and performances. So in, in other words, I would, to the policymakers, I would not only talk with them about a particular intervention and the evidence that supports that intervention, but I would also want to talk about the underlying evidence as to how good or bad people's uh, cognition and performances are. But and you may mean something else with data, yes. could that be? I mean, data science in the picture. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are many ways of integrating, uh, and, and I, I would argue that we in Berlin are, of course, also using data science. There are com computer scientists, mathematicians. And of course, I mean, so or let me step back. I think what, that was my impression when I went to uh, a recent event of the OECD in Paris. And I think there is the danger that because we have now really cute tools, whether it's defaults, whether it's framing, whether it's positional effect or friction, that the hard work of analyzing the problem, and for that you need the data, of analyzing the problem is no longer done. Or at least it's not done enough as I wanted to. There were people speaking up in that, um, in that conference who basically said, well, I know what I do, I, here I do positional, positional effect and here I do default and then I'm done and walk away. And 
that cannot be. Uh, we need data when we analyze the problem, we need data when we design the intervention, and we need data when we evaluate what we do. So data is, of course, it's key to all of this. You need data about preferences, preferences and, of people. And right? you need data on preferences. thing you've been arguing. Yes. Um, so um, can I please have hands raised again and see? So, yeah, go for it. Yes, last question. Thank you very much. So there, yeah. Brown, brown sweater, yeah. Um, to understand how boosting is specifically different to education, because um, I think other people might be thinking that as well. Um, and then if you could just sort of take us through the example of um, boosting people to identify disinformation as to how that would differ to what like a traditional awareness sort of campaign would do, I think that'd be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. So. Boosting doesn't mean uh, that you send people back to schools. Um, boosting can be, um, boosting for me is lifelong learning uh, because the, the problems that we face in the world in, in a, such a volatile, fast-changing world occur all the time and they co occur also once we have left schools. So again, think of the examples. When I went to school, disinformation and misinformation in the digital world <laughs> It was the digital world, uh, let alone that somebody talked about this or misinformation in the digital world. So this is a new challenge, and it's also a new challenge for adults whom we want to empower and equip to deal with that kind of problem. And so in that sense, that doesn't mean that boosting and education cannot go together. Of course, you can also bring boosting elements into, the, in the, uh, into curricula. That's what uh, basically um, Sam Weinberg tries to do with lateral reading. Now, to go back to lateral reading, it's really interesting because if you typically read an educational science book, then the way teachers and educational scientists talk about misinformation is very often, not all the time, but very often is in terms of we need to educate people to critically think. And critically thinking means engaging with the content, analyzing the content, thinking through the content, evaluating it. And that's exactly what the history professors in the studies by Sam Weinberg and, and, uh, and his students at Stanford did. They used the powers of their critical thinking because that's what they have been trained to do. And basically, people are really bad at it. Uh, I think if I remember correctly, the, the ability to figure out whether a website was credible or not was on chance level. Um, and what uh, Sam Weinberg is arguing, uh, on top of critical thinking, we need the ability to critically ignore and to do what the professional fact-checkers do. And what that means is that you may be tempted to open that website and to read it and to walk your way through it, but you have no chance. They are really good at coming up with content that traps you. And so what he says is, no, you leave that behind. The first thing you do is you ask one question, who's behind this website? Who produced this website? Uh, and what kind of information is on the web available about the credibility of this website or the credibility of the producers of this website? So in, in a way, you are not engaging with the content, but you first figure out, should I even enter that website or not? Uh, and that's a totally different approach. 
I mean, it's one. There are other boosting-like uh, interventions in, to deal with mis- and disinformation. But lateral reading is a particularly interesting one because it challenged this idea that we deal with misinformation in the world by, critical, by critically thinking our way through it. But that's impossible. I mean, there are too many, there's too much information. We can never, critic, through critical thinking alone, deal with the problem of mis- and disinformation. Great. Well, it's been an amazing pleasure to listen to your lecture and all of this engagement. Uh, we now have opportunity to continue a discussion outside at the, at the reception. Um, just thanks, uh, thanks for coming and thanks all for joining and good evening. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.